And our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. We'll continue our journey in the book of Hebrews, this time from chapter 2, verses 10 to 18, to the end of the chapter. Hebrews 2, 10 to 18. Thus says the word of God. For it became him for whom are all things, by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to be called them brethren saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of, of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things is behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. This far the reading of God's word. Our sermon text this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 to 18. But before we, we start, let us pray once again and ask for the Lord's blessing upon his word. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we come before thee, Lord, at this moment you hear from thy word, Lord. So open our eyes and open our ears, Lord, to receive thy word. And may thy Holy Spirit come before us, Lord, and prepare the hearts to hear from thy message, Lord, to hear from thy throne, and to glorify thee today and forevermore. O Lord, and we pray that just as we have sing, from death and evil set me free, Lord. I leave, Lord, for thou didst answer me. O Lord, make this gospel reality in our midst. Even today, we pray all these in Jesus' name. Amen. In our last section, uh, the author to the Hebrews spoke of Christ's divinity. We started looking up to heaven to see how glorious is Christ, how he is greater than the angels, the most exalted of all, his divinity. But we also started seeing of his incarnation, of how 
He came down from heaven to undo what the first Adam had done. The author then wells together, he brings together anthropology, the doctrine of man, and Christology. He brings these two together as we saw in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 2. How Christ for a little while was made lower than the angels. And now, he continues the theme of Christ's incarnation. But now he's speaking of how he's united to us, united to his people through his incarnation. Bringing really all doctrines and all themes in relation to the Son, the God-man, Jesus Christ. In this section, we will see how Christ is united to His people, and through His unity, He is the perfect Savior. He shares our mortality. He shares our struggles. And He saves us as the God-man who dwelled among us. And we will dive into the topic of the Son's union with His people. And to do so, we will meditate on the three points. First, through suffering, he identifies, verses 10 to 13. Second, through death, he delivers, verses 14 and 15. And third, through our nature, he aids, verses 16 to 18. So first, let's consider how through suffering, he identifies with us, verses 10 to 13. In verse 10, we see already how the history of the world, the history of redemption, in fact, the whole history of humanity, past and future, is not about mankind, but about God. We could say that history is Christ-centered. We have in this verse an echo of Paul's theology, as he says in Romans chapter 11, verse 36, For of him and through him and to him, are all things to whom be the glory forever. It's really very similar words that the author to the Hebrews is here speaking. And one of the goals of this Christ-centered history is to bring many sons unto glory. And here the every man that he spoke in the last verse, in verse 9, it starts to be specified. It doesn't refer to all mankind but to all those, to these many sons and daughters for whom he has died. And the way that he redeemed his people is somewhat perplexing. For whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons into glory, and now really a paradox, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Perfect through suffering. How could it be that this one who is all in all is made perfect through suffering? Someone, someone could ask, but I thought he was already perfect. We saw in the first section how he is the God-man. He is already perfect, isn't he? He, is, he already shares the divinity of the Godhead. How can he be perfected? Moreover, how could such a glorious Savior, savior be perfected through suffering? 
This is a shocking statement. It cannot mean that, that he was less God or less powerful than God. For we saw in the last section that he is far greater than the angels. He is the very God of very God. And it cannot mean that he was at first sinful and then he was made sinless. For later on, the author to the Hebrews will say, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Chapter 4, verse 15. So what does it mean that he was made perfect through suffering? In the Old Testament, the word perfect is used for the consecration of priests, signifying their qualification for the office. For example, in Leviticus chapter 2, verse 10. And he that is the high priest among his brethren, upon whose head the anointing oil was poured, and that is consecrated, same word, to put on the garments, shall not uncover his head, nor rend his clothes. So the priest was consecrated, was anointed, and prepared to his office. Likewise, Jesus achieves perfection, consecration, not by moral improvement, but through obedience, through his suffering, through his death, through his exaltation, making him qualified to fulfill his role as the high priest, as our high priest. So he's not only perfect, as we saw already in the first part, but he is proved to be perfect before the eyes of all by his consecration by fulfilling his office by obedience. This way, Christ is the founder of salvation, the captain of salvation. He had to be made lower than the angels. He had to take our human nature to be the captain of our salvation. Or literally here, the expression is the founder of salvation. Pointing that Jesus is at the same time the source of and the one who establishes salvation, and also the one who leads the way of salvation. He is the pioneer of salvation. This verse shows how Jesus dying on the cross was not a last-minute resource. God didn't change the plans when Jesus was made man, and he found a way to save humanity. No, it was God's plan from the, from the very beginning. It was God's design to redeem His people by salvation through judgment, by perfection through suffering. As the saying goes, the way up is the way down. The way to Christ's exaltation was through humiliation and death. And perhaps we could call it a glorious paradox that He is made perfect through suffering. As our consecrated priest... Christ is in close association with us. So why was it appropriate to be perfect through suffering? We read in verse 11. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified, that is us, are all of one. We are so connected to Christ to the point that we are one. We are made one with Christ. We are so united to Him that we are one with Him. 
This is how strong is the bond that unites us. Christ was, un- was willing to be identified with us to the point of being made man like us. But at the same time that we are united to him, there is distinction. You see, there is something that unites us that makes us one, but that is distinction. He is the one who sanctifies, and we are the ones who are sanctified. There is distinction. And it is in this pit of affliction, in the midst of our affliction, that he comes low to meet us. Christ is the consecrated high priest, and he is the one who sanctifies us. If we go back to Leviticus chapter 21, as we read in verse 10, verse 10 says that he is the consecrated high priest. But verse 8 says that it is God who sanctifies. Leviticus 21 verse 8. He shall be holy unto thee, for I, the Lord, which sanctify you, am holy. So when the author to the Hebrews is picking up upon this theme, He's saying that Jesus Christ is at the same time the consecrated high priest and the God who sanctifies. You see, he is all in all. He's the fulfillment of all. He is the God who sanctifies, who makes us holy, and he is the priest who is consecrated. This is, then it is mind-boggling to read that he is not ashamed to be called to call them brethren. This God man who sanctifies, who is made perfect, is not ashamed to call them brethren. And the fact that he is not ashamed, he doesn't have the same connotation that we think today in our society. Our society sees shame as a malicious emotion something harmful. You should be able to freely express yourself, to be free without the fear of embarrassment or shame. You need a safe space, as they say, in which you you are completely free from shame. That is the very trend of our society nowadays. But in the ancient world, Shame had a different nuance, a different meaning. Shame was closely tied to one's public reputation. It involved an internal sense of disgrace, leading the person to remain out of sight, out of the fear of guilt and shame. It would be dishonored for others to see him or her. A biblical dictionary exemplifies this way. Shame was a key value in warfare. A warrior who fled from battle was viewed as a disgrace. Out of fear of shame, a soldier would fight to death rather than put his personal safety above the city's safety. So shame was a big deal in the ancient world. One way shame has been identified is this. It's an awareness that one has fallen short of some standard. Awareness of one has fallen short of some standard. This way, the guilt of sin 
can provoke shame, creating a negative self-evaluation in face of God's standard, of His law. When our text says that Christ is not ashamed, it's not using any modern romantic connotation that we have today, but it is the shame of any association with sin. He, on his part or ours, is not ashamed to be called our brother because he has completely dealt with our sins. He can now be called our brother without the guilt of sin, without the shame of sin because he has already paid the price. He has removed the stink of sin that wasn't on us. And he can now be unashamedly be called our brother without any stigma. For his righteousness was made ours. And when he associates with us, he is associated with his own righteousness. And this applies to us in so many ways today. This applies to those who are struggling with shame in many different levels. Has some of you struggled with shame caused by past sins in your life? Sins that you committed. You fled from the battle, as the analogy says. You left your post. You fled from God. You sinned against Him. And now this guilt, this shame, is keeping you, keeping you away from Him. Some sins leave a strong mark of shame, of guilt on our souls. For example, sins as adultery, pornography, alcoholism, stealing, drugs, any, or any other addiction. The sins can leave a strong mark of shame buried in us, deep in us. These sins can carry and will carry a big stink of guilt in your soul. But the answer is not to redefine what shame means or to create safe spaces as our society tries to do. The answer is to bring our guilty to Jesus. The same can happen to those who are hurt by the sins of others. Those who are struggling not because of the sins that you committed, but because of the sins of others. Those who are hurt by the sins of others. Those who are oppressed, abandoned. Those who are sinned against. And one of the worst harms can be caused by abuse, for example. In different forms. And often the abused person will carry this deep shame. A feeling of worthlessness. Almost as if shame was written in his or her forehead. And the answer to shame then is not to redefine shame. Is not to reject shame. Is not to create safe spaces and to be unashamed. No, the answer to shame is Jesus Christ. He took my shame on the cross. One of their attempts to torture and to humiliate Jesus was to shame him. They did this by spitting on Jesus. 
by striking him in the face and the head, striping off his clothes, ridiculing Jesus, insulting, insulting him. You can name anything that is associated with, with shame. It was done to Jesus. Things as disgrace, scorn, despise, revile, reproach, rebuke, insult, blaspheme, deride, mock. It was all done to him. He received all of it. And for the glory that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame of the cursed tree for you and me. There is no shame that he hasn't carried on that cross. Now if someone asks you, where is your shame? You can point to that cross in shame and say, it's nailed in that cross and I bear it no more. Because he took it upon himself. That is the answer for shame. A society is so blind to see that the answer for shame is nothing we can do. But Jesus did on the cross. My Savior, who identifies with me through suffering, He dealt with my sins, my shame, my guilt. Your Savior went willingly to that place of shame to deal with a guilty that belonged to us, not Him. And if your Savior is not ashamed to come so low to meet with you, how can you be ashamed to come to Him? What an irony that He went to that place of shame, to that cursed tree, and now we are ashamed to come to Him. It cannot be. It cannot be. Another form that he identifies with us, it's by praising God with us. Verse 12. Saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I, Jesus Christ, sing praises unto thee. Even in the midst of this church, he sings praises to the Father in the midst of his brethren. Christ is, Christ is announcing the Father before men. Hebrews is here quoting from Psalm 22, verse 22, showing how Jesus identifies with his fellow believers by calling them my brothers, unashamedly calling them my brothers. And now it is interesting that the author to the Hebrews is quoting from Psalm 22. Psalm 22, that is perhaps the most well-known messianic psalm of all. Almost every verse of Psalm 22 is quoted in the New Testament. The psalm that deals so greatly with Jesus' suffering and exaltation. A psalm that would be in Jesus' own mouth as he was on that cross, crying out, my God, my God, 
Why hast thou forsaken me? The context of Psalm 22 was certainly in the mind of the author to the Hebrews. How could the one who was forsaken, crying out aloud in verse 1 of Psalm 22, now in verse 22, he is in glory, crying out in the midst of his brothers, exalting the Father. He is the one who went from suffering to glory. Through his suffering, he identifies with us. And the good news is that we become partakers of his victory as well. Just as he went through suffering to glory, we are now partakers of the same. Christ's exaltation becomes our exaltation as we are united to him. And now Jesus praises the Lord not alone, but in the midst of his brethren, in the presence of his brothers and sisters. Even today, we are ready gathered in assembly in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though we don't see it yet, but it is only through him, through his blood that is sprinkled in the veil, that we have access into the presence of God. And then in verse 13, the author quotes from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. In the context that Judah is in danger of losing its king. And in the midst of this political turmoil, the prophet Isaiah calls the people to turn to God. Trust him. Turn to God. Fear not. Even in face of earthly dangers, he calls them, fear not. God's children are invited to trust in him. And his children are here described as those whom the Lord has given to Jesus. And just as God delivered Jesus, the Davidic king would come and sit upon the throne forevermore. From his sufferings, we also can trust that he will deliver us. You see, he partook our suffering, so now we can partake of his victory and exaltation. Through suffering, he identifies with us. Through his suffering, he's indeed just like us. And the good news is that through exaltation, we are made like him. Brothers and sisters, the good news of the gospel is that we have a Savior who is not far off who identifies with us, who is united to us, who is not ashamed to be called our brother. He identifies with us until the very core of what it means to be a human, until the point of death. And that is our second point, that through death, he delivers. Jesus is united with us to the point of taking our own nature, flesh and blood, and sharing the same destiny of mankind, death. So that through death, he delivers us from the devil and from the fear of death. These verses show us two ways by which he, he delivers, two ways that he delivers us, and two things that he delivers us from. That is, it shows two hows and two and what for. 
So the first how is by taking our humanity. Since children share flesh and blood, he partook our humanity. Verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself took part of the same. We are human, therefore he became human. He understands us so much that he even understands our mortality. In the Bible, we read that Jesus sweat like us. He shed tears like us. He cried like us. He was thirsty, hungry like us. He partook our flesh and blood, the same needs that we have, so that he can relate to our suffering. He even partook in our greatest frailty of all, death which is the second how, by dying. That through death, so that through death. See, he took our humanity in order that he could die. He was born so that he could die. The reason for the incarnation was the death of the Son of God. From the beginning... The purpose was to die. And for that to be possible, he had to share our nature to be able to die. And this is how he did it. By taking our nature and by dying on our place. But then, why he did it? Why he did it? And the first what for is to destroy the devil who had the power of death. Verse 14, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. Let us back up a moment here a little bit. How did the devil gain the power of death in the first place? We would expect that God, who is sovereign over all, who rules over the universe, the creator of the universe, had the power of death, right? That's what we read in the first section. He holds everything by the power of his hands. So when did the devil receive this power? The devil is called the prince of power of the air, Ephesians 2, 2. Prince of this world, John 12, 31. And even the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. As humankind rebelled against God as sin entered into the world the devil gained a seducing power over mankind you see the devil is the accuser right? the one he accuses and he accuses us with our own sins that is his weapon John Piper summarized how the devil has this power this way. By turning death into a doorway to hell instead of a doorway to heaven, by damning me with all the records of my debts. This is how the devil got this weapon to accuse us, to hold us in bondage. But by Christ's death, He took away this power from the devil. 
He unarmed the devil. He took away this power from him. And how did Jesus destroy the devil's power? Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. He has made our hive together with him, having forgiven our trespasses, blotting out the rain writing of our ordinances that was against us. That is the record of debt which was contrary to us and took, it, and took it out of the way nailing it to the cross and having spoiled the principalities and powers he made a show of them openly another translation says that he put them to open shame triumphing over them in it Christ died for us and in doing so, the record of debt that was against us is nailed to the cross. And now the devil has nothing left to accuse us. The very thing that he held as a weapon to accuse us, to mock us, to put us into shame, is now nailed to that cross. And now what an irony. The devil is put to shame in our place. As he tries to accuse us. As he points his finger against us. He is the one who is put to shame as Jesus Christ. He spoils the principalities and powers. He is the one who is put to shame. Jesus took away the one weapon that Satan had. My sins. The death of Christ counts for me as my own death. And now Satan's power is nullified. He has nothing to accuse me before God. Because my sins were dealt with, not in part, but the whole. And the second for what? Is to deliver us from slavery, which results from the fear of death. Verse 15. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Everybody has a fear of dying. And this fear holds us in a lifelong slavery. A spiritual bondage that, that torments us on this side of eternity. We were created for glory. Right? We saw last time when the author quotes from Psalm 8, we were the crown of creation, created for glory. But now, because of our sin, not all things are yet placed under our feet. We don't see yet, right? These things being placed under our feet, especially not death. Death represents the disruption the disruption of the purpose for which we were created for represents our failure. It becomes a discontinuity, a separation. It becomes a shadow, a fear in our existence. Life is a vapor, as the author of Ecclesiastes refers to. And it reminds us that the things here in this world will fade away, even our lives. The reality of death can be a torment to many nowadays. 
But what the author to the Hebrews is saying is that by Christ's sacrifice, we are set free, not only from death, but from the fear of death. The curse that was set upon us is undone by Christ. Christ not only feared us from death itself, but from the fear of death. What a wonderful news. That Christ restores us to a state even more glorious than that one that we were created. That now we don't even have the danger, the fear of death upon us. Because our sins has already been dealt with. He paid a price through death to set us free from this bondage. And the irony here is that death is what undone death. As John Owen said, on the cross we have the death of death in the death of Christ. He took our death upon himself to give his life to us. You see, the Hebrews to whom this letter was written, they were being persecuted They were being slain, killed. So the fear of death was something very much present in their days. And Christ frees them, not only from death, but from the fear of death. This changes the whole picture. Jesus said in John 11, 25 and 26, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. You see, there is nothing, nothing the devil can threaten you with. When he tries to shame you. When he tries to put you under the fear of death. You can point to that cross and say. The price is paid. You cannot charge me twice. He died on my place. There is nothing you can take from me. Because I know that though I die. I shall live in him forevermore. The price is paid. Because of what Christ has done for us, we can look to death and say, as he has said, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? There is nothing the devil can take away from us because the price was paid in Jesus. Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing 
can separate the believer from this union with Christ. Not even death. Not the principalities and powers. Nothing. It's changed the whole picture. Because now there is nothing Satan can point us and accuse us with. He cannot hold us in fear of anything. Not the shame of of sin and not the fear of death. Because the price is paid. In Jesus. We can tell death. Oh death. I fear you no more. Because on that cross my Savior died for me. And although I die. I know I shall live. Dear believer, you are free from the fear of death. There is nothing else that can hold you in bondage. Because what he has done. This is the power of our union with him. That not the principalities are powers. Not the devil, not the angels, not our sins, not death. Can separate us from him anymore. This is the power of what he has done. For us. But why would Jesus do this for us? Why he freed us from the bondage of death? Why did he had to come to deliver us and not the angels? That's our third point. That through our nature he aids, he helps us. Verse 16. For is that is the purpose for verily he took not on him the nature of angels but he took on him the seed of Abraham despite how marvelous marvelous the angels are as we saw last time they are glorious creatures indeed but he took on him the seed of Abraham our nature this speaks of Jesus identification with humanity Highlighting his role as the covenant-keeping priest-king. He did not come to save all children of Adam, but those who are the children of the promise, the children of Abraham. As Paul says in Galatians 3, 7, Know we therefore that they which are of faith, that is those who believe, the same are the children of Abraham. He took our nature to take hold, to help those who have faith in him. And then we are made children of Abraham, children of the promise. Jesus associated with his people like angels never could. And he helped his people as no other mediator would ever be able to do. Verse 17 tells us, that we also need a Savior who is both merciful and faithful. Both aspects of a high priest, of our high priest. Christ's faithfulness and mercifulness are essential. His mercy is what allowed us to approach God with confidence. That is what allows sinners like us to approach God is His mercy. We plead to His mercy. And His faithfulness is what gives us the confidence that we can continue on coming before Him. We can continually appear before Him, 
knowing that he will not change his mind. He will not change his plan because he is forever faithful. Of course, Jesus not only had to be merciful and faithful, but a high priest. He had to present a sacrifice before God. And this is the first time that the author to the Hebrews introduces this theme of high priest, of priesthood. But he will speak 17 times about Jesus as the high priest. So it is safe to say that this is one key theme in the book of Hebrews, and we will deal more in depth with it in later sections. He had to be all this in order to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. This reconciliation is the fruit of Jesus satisfying God's wrath that was upon us and forgiving our sins. Can you guess what is the leading cause of death in the world? Well, it is sin. A hundred percent of the deaths in the world are caused by sin. And to free us from death and the fear of death, Christ had to deal with our sins, which is the very cause of death. Atonement had to take place, not to appease the devil, but to appease God himself. He had to reconcile us with God to bring us once again in communion with our triune God. By doing so, Jesus has redefined our very identity. Notice how we are called now. For those whose sins are forgiven, God calls us now. First, many sons, verse 10. Those who are sanctified, verse 11. Jesus calls us brothers, verses 11 and 12. And the children God gave Jesus, verse 13. And as Abraham's offspring. You see, he changes our very identity. He gives us this new identity in Christ Jesus. One final example of how through our nature he is able to help us. Is Christ's sympathy for the tempted. Verse 18. Jesus is the only one able to help us because he resisted temptation to the very end. Not falling into sin like we did. Otherwise, he would be of no good. If he had fallen into sin, failed his temptation, he would be of no good at all. The theologian Philip Hughes comment. It is a fallacy also to imagine that the fact that he did not fall into sin means that he know less about temptation than those who have given in to it. For his conquest of temptation, while ensuring his sinlessness, in fact, increased rather than diminished his fellow feeling. Since he knows the full force of temptation in a manner that we who have not withstood it to the end cannot know it. You see, he knows temptation into a level that we cannot even imagine. Because we failed. But he didn't. He experienced the full force of temptation. So now he's able to sympathize with us, to relate to us, to help us. He's able to help because he can relate to our suffering. 
The Hebrews were being tempted to backslide into Judaism. And Christ says that he is able to help, for he relates to us. Because he took our nature and he knows our sufferings. Christ's suffering and temptation enable him to be a source of support for those who are tempted. Demonstrating that he is able to relate to our pains. He knows our struggles. He relates to us. He identifies to us. He relates to us. He took upon himself our nature so that he can relate to us. All of us go through struggles in our lives to a degree or another. But he knows it all to his fullness, to its fullness. Through his suffering, he identifies with us and with our suffering. And through his death, he delivers us from the power of death. Through taking our nature upon himself, he is able to help to resist as we face trials in our own lives. By taking our nature and through suffering and death, he removes the shame of sin. He frees us from the devil. He frees us from death and from the fear of death. In Jesus Christ, we have a unique Savior who not only is able to save, but is also able to relate to us and to our pains. And we can look to Him. We can come to Him. We can rest in Him. Jesus is not simply a great moral example or the best teacher. He is the God-man. And he deserves to be worshipped because of who he is, the God-man, and what he has done for us. He's God to save us, and he's man to relate to us in our sufferings. What a good news that we have in him. What a savior we have in Jesus that knows our pain, that relates to us, who took away our guilt, our shame, and who remove the curse of death, the fear of death from upon, upon us. And just as the author to the Hebrews did, I want to invite you today to turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. What a Savior we have in Jesus. The answer to our struggles is not to find anything else in the world that can comfort us. It's not to redefine guilt or shame. It's not to ignore the reality of death. But to look at Him, at His glory and grace, and say, my sins are dealt with, not in part, but the whole. What a Savior we have in Jesus. Amen. Let us pray to our Lord. O Lord God Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, O Lord, the sun is so exalted on high,
lifted up above the angels. And even so, he took upon himself our nature, flesh and blood, to die in our place on that cursed tree. Oh, Lord, and now in Christ Jesus, by our union with our Lord and Savior, we can say, death is no more. My sins are dealt with. There's nothing the devil can accuse me with. So, oh, Lord, free us, Lord, from this bondage, from this slavery of sin and death. And bring us, Lord, rejoicing to worship Thee in the presence of the Son Himself. Oh, Lord, our prayer is that we would see His glorious face filled with glory and grace. And enable us, Lord, to worship Thee today and forevermore. To sing praises before Thee in the company of angels and in the company of of the Son himself. Prepare us, Lord, for the day that we will see face to face the reality that we already profess, that we will be in the company of saints from all ages, in the company of angels, and death will be swallowed up. The devil will be cast away, and no more Temptation will be no more. Prepare us, Lord, to rejoice forevermore with thee in the heavens. Makes us citizens of heaven and to glorify thy name today and forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.